0: So maybe we should start. Um, welcome everybody to the Townsend Humanities Center. My name is Timothy Hampton. I'm the director of the center, and I'm delighted to welcome you to this event. Um, one quick announce, one quick self-serving announcement, which is that on Wednesdays at noon, the Townsend Center runs a program called Book Chats, um, and tomorrow we'll be featuring Sugata Ray from the um, Art History Department talking about um, his new book on. Climate and art in early modern India. So that will be great, and uh, you don't have to read the book to come. Uh, so um, this is uh, uh, today's conversation is in the context of the Art of Writing program, and I'll say a, a bit about the Art of Writing program just for a second, and then I'll introduce Scott Saul, who introduced Carlo Rotello. Um, the Art of Writing program is now in its fifth year, and it celebrates writing as a teachable art on the Berkeley campus. The program trains undergraduates to become excellent writers, uh, I stress that, in a variety of genres and fields. Um, It prepares graduate students to become skilled teachers of writing, I stress skilled, skilled teachers of writing and fosters lively public engagement with the written word. The program is supported by the Mellon Foundation, by the Kostlin Distinguished Chair in Writing and by various private donors to the program. So we're happy in this context um, in the context of the writing program to, um, to have this event today. So I'll, I'll turn it over now to Scott Saul, who is a professor of English at UC Berkeley. He's the author of Becoming Richard Pryor and Freedom Is, Freedom Ain't, Jazz and the Making of the 60s. Um, he was a member of the founding advisory board for the Art of Writing, so he's been with us um, for a while, and he continues to teach a popular art of writing course on cultural criticism. Uh, be, uh, actually, before I turn it over to Carlo uh, to uh, Paul, uh, Scott, I'll also point out that Carlo is doing another event. Uh, he can't get enough of Berkeley. Um, later on today at seven o'clock in 315 Wheeler, he'll be talking about his book of the world is always coming to an end, pulling together and pulling apart, uh, pulling together and apart in a Chicago neighborhood. So, um, with those words, I'll now be quiet and turn it over to Scott and Carlo. Okay.
1: Um, And there's going to be no overlap between today's afternoon's event and tonight's. They're very different, actually. Um, So uh, it's really my pleasure to welcome the writer Carla Rotella in a discussion of craft, how writers, musicians, athletes, and others cultivate their talent. A professor of American Studies at Boston College who has also been a Boston Globe columnist and a frequent contributor to the New York Times Magazine, Rotella is himself a consummate craftsman. Whenever I see his byline pop up in the Times Magazine, or the New Yorker, or Harper's, or any of the approximately kerjillion venues to which he has contributed his gem-like prose, I know that I'm in for a special treat, an experience offered nowhere else in magazine journalism. Whether he's writing about a masterful child psychiatrist, or boxing champion Floyd Merriweather Jr., or the Chicago polka scene, or HBO auteur David Simon, or the question of whether kids should have tablets in schools. I know that the prose will be chiseled but fluid, imaginative yet meticulous. Every figure and every place will come vividly to life, conjured through a deft weave of well-chosen details. Not infrequently, the seemingly indescribable, a lightning-quick fencing match, the play of ambivalent emotion over a face, gets precisely described. The action parsed by an observer who seems to take in absolutely everything. There will often be a startling simile or two offered for my simultaneous amusement and edification. And perhaps most distinctively, for journalists tend to be drawn to the surface of things where they often remain, there will always be an idea pulsing beneath the prose, giving life to it. In every world that Rotella explores, there are stakes, artistic stakes, emotional stakes, historical stakes, political stakes, and it's his genius to draw those stakes out of the stories that he fashions. A lot of those stories are about craft, which is why we'll be tackling two larger questions about craft today. First, how do people get good at what, what they do, whatever they may be? And second, how does a writer capture that craft in prose that is attuned and alive and itself craftily orchestrated and composed. In terms of format, this is how I'll, it'll work. I'll start off the conversation with a set of questions. The conversation will percolate between us for a while. And then around five, um, we'll open it up for everyone in the audience. Okay, so let's dive in. Hopefully we're not gonna get any more feedback because we're only using one microphone from now on. Okay, so let's dive in. Now, I've teed up a few Passages from Carlo's wonderful writings. Those would come in, you know. Uh, there's some. You can sit over here, you know. Uh, one seat one here. Seat. Right. Um, so I'm going I'm to tee up some some passages, and people, and Carlo will talk about the situation he was in when he was profiling this person or that person, and the uh, and so on. But I, I thought I would start wide angle with kind of a foundational question, then we can draw the subtleties from there. Which is, you know, how it is. How is it that Writers, musicians, athletes, and others cultivate their talent. More specifically, what do these uh, divor- diverse sorts of craftsmen and craftswomen share in terms of the training that takes them on the path from apprentice uh, to virtuoso? And I'll just lay that out. Okay. Thank you, Scott. And I have to. Speaking
2: of craft, Scott has to do three different introductions for me today, and uh, and introducing people is a craft. And the, these first two were totally different from each other. And I just want to. Show respect and appreciation. Wait
1: till you hear the third. That's the real doozy.
2: (laughs) Um, So uh, you know, if 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 you were led to believe that I'm now going to say something profound about uh, how people get good at things, (laughs) forget it. Um, But uh, I thought what I would do, and there's apologies to at least two of you who heard this in a class earlier today. um, I I just want to say a word about a kind of a model that I have in my mind when I think about. You know, I spend a lot of time writing about people who get who are good at things. And trying to figure out one how they got that way, and two what it means, what it tells us about the world, the larger world. And I have a sort of model in my mind, and that model also applies to developing one's own craft as a writer. And it goes something like this: um, I think of people as having a kind of inchoate urge or an impulse. Uh, many people, and so it might be an impulse to like make noise, right? Or it might be an impulse. Some people have an appetite for hitting. I write about boxers a lot. Some people just like concussion. You know, they. they they feed on it. Some people you know, like color. Some people, uh, there's this, we have a variety of inchoate urges. And those inchoate urges um, can lead to a creative impulse of one kind or another. And a lot of what I think about is how those urges get poured into containers, get poured into vessels that give them shape. And there's two vessels in particular that I think about a lot. The first is what you might call the vessel of style or of genre. right? So if you have an urge to make noise, um, and you grow up, to, as I, I wrote about the blues man Buddy Guy, you grow up in, in rural Louisiana and come to Chicago in the 1950s. One obvious vessel into which to pour the inchoate urge to make noise is, is to become a blues guitar player right? and to use electric guitar and the blues as a genre, uh, as a style, to uh, explore your desire. Uh, and, and, and give it some shape. So one way to think about the inchoate urge is what styles or what genres are available? What containers does the culture make available in a particular moment into which to pour that urge? If you think of that urge as like water, it's gonna take the shape of the container, right? And then the next step uh, is that styles and genres tend to be attached to institutions. Uh, by institutions, I mean, um, so this is where we sort of enter uh, the kind of concrete world of history, institutions like blues clubs, boxing gyms, record labels, publishing houses, magazines, um, schools is a big one, right? Uh, this place right here, which is a container for people to pour their inchoate urge to write, right? Um, so, uh, uh, and, and, uh, and when I say it enters history, I mean that the institution, institutions leave a kind of paper trail in history. They own property, they have employees, they pay taxes. Um, and they're where the audience, where producers can meet audiences. So one of the ways to think about it is you have this urge, you pour it into the vessels of style or genre that are available to you, and those containers are attached to institutions. So you end up pouring the urge into institutions. And what started out as um, an urge without shape or with indeterminate shape takes very determinate, very definite shapes. And a lot of what I think about when I profile a musician or a fighter or a writer or somebody else is how did that work with them? What was that sort of deeper urge? What were the sort of social, economic, and political conditions that they were moving through? What containers were available to them? How did the urge go into the containers? And how did it come out bearing that shape? And now that it has that shape, how can we read the consequences of that much larger, bigger picture between the lines of the work? Right? So Buddy Guy, just to take an example, the blues man, He came to Chicago in the 1950s in what you might call the high point of the industrial blues order. So there were a lot of clubs. There were a lot of record labels. There were a lot of really powerful band leaders like Muddy Waters. And he was a sideman. He was a guitar player. And there were limits on what he could do. You could only record a three-minute single. And people like Muddy Waters or Junior Wells could tell him, hey, no long guitar solos and no feedback. Right, Uh, And so he kind of made his way within the blues order. But the world changed in the 1960s. And and rock came along, what's now called classic rock, and made the blues sort of a junior partner in this blues rock combine. And Buddy Guy suddenly got the chance to go long. And there were all these audiences who had been raised on people who loved Buddy Guy, like Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page, who were perfectly happy to have Buddy Guy play 35 chorus solos and have all the feedback he wanted. right? And and who didn't insist on the singing voice being the main thing, which is what the old blues order had insisted on. So there is a case where you can hear in the music uh, this much larger history of migration and and, and cultural change and genres changing and institutions changing, the old record labels dying away and the, the big newer labels coming along and all that between the lines of the music. So that's just a way to say that's kind of a model. And when I think about my own career, I think about all the containers into which I've poured my desire to write. Um, Genre style containers like the profile, the magazine feature, the essay, and also institutions. Schools, above all, but magazines, publishing houses, all all those institutions in which I had to to, uh, fit myself into the possibilities that that container made available. That's a really long answer.
1: That's a great answer, and it's, it's a lot to work with. And before I put up this passage, I just want to ask a follow-up question as kind of the devil's advocate, because oftentimes when we think about craft, we also think of people becoming kind of virtuosos yeah. who are creative, who are not just craft people. And when you say things like containers yeah. and institutions, that kind of language, I think, has, is in friction with the idea of people... Bursting the, their, their chains, <laughs> as I just did. I can't be contained. Don't con- lapel. He, he can't be lapel, contained. Lapel Mike. Yeah. Okay, back on. Um, you, but you know what I'm saying? Like, yeah, there's sure. some people who would say, you know, the the real craft comes from right. leaving behind the institution. How, how do you? And and you certainly have dealt with people like Buddy Guy, who were in a crisis of institutionality. You know. Yeah. Sort of. Well, so Buddy Guy's an interesting example. Just to, to come back at you on
2: that and say. Um, he was liberated to do what he always wanted to do, which is he didn't, want to, he didn't specifically want to be a blues man. He wanted to go outside the boundaries of whatever genre he was playing in, to get over the fence and go on the other side. That's what he likes to do. He likes to make noise. Um, and uh, if the rise of rock enabled him to do it, there are many people who argue he was a more exciting musician when he was constrained. By the blue synthesis, and he had to pack it into a one chorus solo, and he couldn't use feedback, and there was muddy waters, and Junior Wells hovering there saying, "Now don't make noise, yeah, right?" Yeah. And so he had to sort of um, work it in within very constraining limits. But Jimi Hendrix and Jimmy Page and Eric Clapton, Jeff Beck heard the excitement in his kind of constrained playing, and became his acolytes, hmm. and then. When he switched and began to opening for them in the Rolling Stones, they sort of liberated him to tour Europe and make money and, and do all the things that he's done. So that's a case where the constraint actually made the music exciting. Um, I guess I would argue, and some of this is autobiographical. I'm one of those people who sat down to write capital T, capital W, in his early 20s and nothing came out. And you know, it's like I had all the accelerator I needed and no brake, right? And I had to go to graduate school till find some things to say and also to have assignments and papers due and be around people who were trying to write their own stuff and, and be in writing groups and edit other people's work and all that kind of limitation and constraint. Um, because when I had when I was a completely free-range writer, just nothing came out. Um, and so I'm a big fan of assignments, word count limits, um, genre. You know, it's a profile. It's got to be about one person. you got to follow the rules. Um, and I chafe. You know, and complain bitterly and, and rage at my editors and all that. But uh, without the break, I, you know, I can't get anywhere.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so part of that is just me. Yeah. Well, let's look at some examples of what you've done. Yeah, I thought you, you would, uh, when I suggested this topic, you, you chose the first passage, and I chose the other one. So maybe you just want to talk about where this one is coming from and, and then read this is the Lidwood Taylor. I, I put the title, The Craft of the Blues Singer. Uh, I thought we were doing the music lesson. Are we doing this one? Okay. Yeah, it's the music lesson. This is the beginning of it. OK. Uh, let's see. I have to stand up, because I can't see it. damn uh, well, Do you want to tell them where it's from?
2: OK. So this is a profile of Linwood Taylor. He's a, he's a fabulous guitar player from Washington, DC. And I was assigned to write this piece um, that Congress declared 2003 the year of the blues, which I thought was interesting right there. <laughs> right? The Senate. You know, the the piece begins by saying the Senate, which is an august body, but not known for, like, making the E-strings kiss by bending them, right? Uh, The Senate decided 2003 was the year the blues. was centennial, supposedly, of of the sort of first appearance of the blues in mainstream American culture. Um, And so I wrote a profile of a a Washington DC blues man. There's a constraint. You write for the Washington Post magazine, and it has to be DC local. Right, write for the New York Times magazine. Their beat is the universe, and it doesn't have to be local. But you need a Washington D.C. angle when you write for them. But he was perfect for my purposes. He's a fabulous guitar player, who can't sing, right? Uh, Because he's sort of been raised in the the blues era that we live in, which is there's tons of great guitar out there. YouTube is like an endless landscape of guitar to imitate. But he hasn't, you know, he didn't grow up singing in church. He's not a southerner, and he didn't, he doesn't, you can't really hold a note or bend a note, right? and so which he's an extreme example of a lot of blues players these days who are phenomenal guitar players and mediocre singers right so um, uh, this is uh, him uh, so I turned in the story um, and I thought it was good because it was full of like my ideas about blues <laughs> and uh, my editor thought it was good, and he gave it to his editor who I despised the 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 editor in chief he's long gone so the, um, and he came back and said, there's not enough scenes. There's not enough reporting. And I raged around the house and yelled at everyone. And, you know. and then I said, OK, fine. I flew back to Washington DC and sat on him getting a voice lesson. And it turned out to be by far the most important scene in the whole thing, which is this white woman trained in Broadway singing, teaching this black southerner how to sing blues. I was a black man, not a black southerner, how to sing blues. Um, because you know, it's not a genetic patrimony. It's a craft. Right? And his breathing's messed up, and he can't hold a note. Right? So that's what's going on in this scene. And it goes like this. Most blues songs don't have strictly reproduced melodies in the same way that classical Tin Pan Alley or even rock songs do. Blues singers develop a set of vocal moves, bits of melodic DNA they can use to improvise a melody while executing swoops, slides, growls, moans, the musical vocabulary, mimicking and elevating everyday speech that opens up the rich emotional range of the blues. But Taylor doesn't work that way. He figures out a melody for a song with his voice teacher, and he doesn't depart far from that line, not even to hold or bend a note in the usual blues manner. In that sense, she isn't teaching him traditional blues singing. He's not going to be put in a box that's what a black blues man is supposed to sound like, says Ledbetter Hines, who is white. And she has a point. The timbre of his voice is not unpleasing, and his approach to to melody makes for a slightly more formal vocal style that could actually help him stand out among blues singers. But he has to keep working at his craft, honing it, reinforcing good habits, and breaking bad habits. After spending half of the hour-long lesson on exercises, they turn to a song that Taylor wants to add to his repertoire, Freddie King's Me and My Guitar, a ditty about getting your woman to be as tractable as your instrument. Taylor unpacks an acoustic guitar and accompanies himself as he runs through the song once to familiarize ledbetter Hines with it. Having the guitar in his hands makes him more confident, but it interferes with his concentration on vocal technique. They zero in on one especially awkward line in the chorus, I'll play the blues for you. Taylor keeps letting the focus of resonance fall away from the sweet spot between the eyes, leaving the two prominent ooh sounds sounding especially off pitch and forced. Singing those oohs is just like singing moo in the exercises, ledbetter Hines reminds him. I'll tell you what, she says, let's do it without the guitar. When he puts the guitar down, Taylor seems paralyzed for a moment. He has to silently hum the guitar intro to himself before he can begin to sing the first verse. And when he arrives at the chorus, he's so worried about blues and you that he seizes up and blows them. But as ledbetter Hines patiently walks him through the song, pausing for a quick me ma mo moo to shore up his technique, he relaxes, and the sound flows more freely. Finally, at the end of the hour, she lets him use the guitar again, and he sings the song through, this time singing the ooze properly. That's a lot better, she says, and it is. This is everybody's problem, she tells him. It's not just a Linwood thing. To take what we do in the vocalese and put it in the song, that's the hard part.
1: Okay, great. So, I just unpack what you're, why you think in retrospect this scene works, you know? And one, uh, I guess a few levels to my question. One is, I think one thing you're you're quite good at that you do in a lot of your work is you focus on kind of the nonverbal arts. you know, whether boxing I and mean, people <laughs> landing on the left hook or, or um, musicians. Yeah. So how to translate the nonverbal art here, singing, into, uh, into the space of the page?
2: Well, I, I think of a, of a piece like this, a profile or any magazine piece, as, as, a, as, a, as, a, as a series of, of scenes and step backs. Right? So the scenes are like this. That you could film them with a camera. You could block them out on the stage, and, and they would make sense. So in, in, the, in the language of, of writing workshop, it's all showing and no telling. And then the step backs are passages in which I step back and tell uh, when I explain things to the reader. And so a scene will resonate and will work, I think, because it's, it's resonant of the step backs. It's the characters living the consequences of the argument. So in this case, actually, the most important thing in the scene to me is not the quality of his singing, but his uh, reliance on the guitar. Uh, which is a figure of the blues' reliance on the guitar uh, in, in in this era. So what, what's happened to the blues in the last half century is that the balance has gone off between the singing voice and the guitar. The singing voice used to dominate, and the guitar responded to the singing voice. And then at a certain point, with the help of rock, the guitar uh, began to dominate the singing voice, and the point was the wailing solo. So part of what is important in this is that he's paralyzed without the guitar and almost unable to engage the blues without the guitar. And that works and that resonates. I mean, I think it should resonate, just you should feel for him, right? But also, as you read the step backs in the story, that scene should still be echoing, should still be resonating, the ripples from that stone thrown in the pond should still be there so that you're saying, oh, yeah, I'm, uh, yeah, that's, that's totally true of Linwood Taylor, because you know, you're feeling like an expert, right? Um, and so uh, part of what I'm looking for is the scenes that set up and not only set up and illustrate the step backs, but that show characters living the consequences
1: of the bigger picture that the step backs uh, explain. And so I mean, one thing I, I really feel for Linwood Taylor, I mean, the rest of the piece too is sort of like, he's trying to make it as a blues Artist like at a time when just you can't go that far, and then it's like, well, I play guitar, but I gotta sing too. (laughs) And he's not like you're saying he's not a quote natural singer, and and here he is in in these.
2: um, I mean, he's got everything against him. He's a Catholic, you know, like he he he, you know like he's had no exposure to to, to the soul singing or the church singing tradition, none, right? So he can he can do what he can do, which he can play the hell out of the guitar. And there's another scene in which he's the teacher giving lessons in a guitar store and kids come in with like a Metallica song, you know, with in a tricky tuning and he's like, "Oh yeah, this is how you do that," you know, and retunes his guitar and nails
1: it, right? Cuz that's what he does really well. He can do any of that stuff really well. So here you really I mean that you you kind of take us pretty meticulously through the lesson. I mean, yeah. it was longer, but you know, but the, you know that, that thing about the putting in the vocalese and even like the me, quick me me ma mo mu yeah. uh, extra what, what was like Why did you want to put in those details? Because I know you're somebody who, we talked about how you have like notebooks, are reporter for notebooks that are full and full and full of tons of details. So the scene could have been even longer, but you chose these to highlight.
2: Well, I mean, I think there's a couple of things going on there. Um, One, I think it's actually interesting to find out how people get good at (laughs) things, right? how people learn to sing. Um, The other thing is that the, the biggest argument of the piece is that blues is a craft. And so one of the step backs is saying uh, one of the step backs considers the problem of assigning a genre of music to an identity. right Country music is for white people. Blues is black music, right. And the problem with that is that even if it's historically often true, it runs afoul of the fact that these are skills. these are crafts, and you have to work at them and practice them. It's not just you know the blues is not just a philosophical attitude or a, like a you know a, cultural patrimony right it's, a, it's a if,
1: if the blues was identified with the black community it's probably because there was these segregated juke joints where people yeah. were playing or but they also were, you they know and exactly. also it was
2: invented by black people um, and, and you know until uh, you know uh, until the you know the, the rise of rock and, and what people in Chicago call the folk scare right um, it was easier to see the blues as black music right um, but that moment has in, in a lot of ways passed and it's also passed in the sense that the the, the paying audience with the most clout, Comes to blues from rock, right? And they have rock-trained sensibilities, and they're listening for rock-like things in their blues, right? So part of the point of the Mima and all that stuff is to say, um, is to say it is to show that it is a craft, it is a skill set, right? Mm-hmm. But it's also in the service of this larger argument that the blues is a skill, is a craft, and that um, you have to learn how to do it. And one of the and if you're not Southern, not raised in the Southern church, you're already behind the eight ball in terms of singing. Right, you have to figure out a way um, to to get that training from somewhere. And in his case, he doesn't have a lot of money, so he trades lessons. He teaches uh, 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 Alison Ledbetter Hines's son to play rock guitar, and hmm. she and she teaches him to sing blues. Right, and that's the that's the deal. Right, um, which I thought was just part of this whole like Congress. Remember the original idea. Congress has declared this the year of blues. Is Linwood Taylor like you know? Is he seeing any positive results from this? Is it like, is Congress sending him a subsidy? No, right? Um, so uh, uh, you know, so that's part of the story, too, is like, what's it like to make a living on the ground as a blues man? And it turns out guitar lessons, in his case, is what make the
1: ends meet. You know, the gigs don't do it, his, you know, the albums don't sell that much. But also establishes a kind of neat sense of reciprocity between yeah. The, his, the teacher and the yeah. man, you know, Because the because she's not a blues woman. She's not a blues singer.
2: But they're fellow musicians. They're trying to make a living, trying to piece together a living. I'm always fascinated by how musicians make a living, especially musicians who make a living from only music. So he, he quit his day job um, a while ago. And that's, that's of interest to me, because that's a classic example of okay, how is this person living within the set of possibilities that the culture of the historical moment makes available. Right. And being a superb blues guitar player isn't enough. And they're a diamond dozen, right? Um, on YouTube, any you know, there's an eleven year old from Serbia playing a solo, and then a ten-year-old from the Philippines like <laughs> crushes the eleven year old from Serbia, and then you know. So um, but you know, there's not a ton of people um, showing you how to
1: how to how to be a blues singer. Yeah, yeah. Well I wanna to move to the next example, which is from um, Yale Alumni Magazine. I, I remember when this uh this profile came out. It kind of broke the internet in the world of Yale alumni. Because uh, <laughs> <laughs> it was about parenting, how to deal with difficult children. Yeah. Everybody's talking about it. So anyway, why don't you set up the, the piece and then and talk about what this passage kind of,
2: of a guy named Alan Kasdan, who's one of the, the, the leading psychologists, child psychologists in the world. Um, and uh, I got the assignment because I write about boxing. And the editors at the magazine said, Hey, you know, this guy deals with a lot of really violent children, so this sounds like it's up your alley. Uh, and I got really interested in him. He's one of the, there's probably two just like stone geniuses I've ever met in, in, because of my work, and he's one of them. Um, he can get anyone to do anything. Right? You could parachute him naked into a country where he doesn't speak the language, and he would be president at the end of the month. Right? Uh, <laughs> and, and he never says, I've been working with children all my life, and I. It's always he says if the research said hit him, I would say hit him. But the research says don't say hit him. Right? He just he's a scientist, and what he's got is basically a technology. You know, he can get kids to behave, especially ultra defiant kids. So the, the the threshold to see him, at that point was. Um, multiple police calls to the house, school suspension, hospital visit, right so these are families that are in deep, deep distress, um, and what he does is simple behavior modification he doesn 't care about root causes, doesn 't care about your inner life, regards Freud as literature, um, interesting literature <laughs> but literature he 's just interested in behavior right so this is a scene in which I asked him, so like what do you do <laughs> you know when you 're working with a kid and so this is him. Uh, Kasdan gets up from his chair and comes around his desk to demonstrate how to deal with a tantrum. A youthful 60-year-old, slightly gaunt in his suit. By the way, that's the one line that he objected to <laughs> in the whole thing. He's like, I'm, I'm
1: just svelte. Uh, so he, he wanted it gaunt. Said it gaunt. Too he didn't withered. like gaunt.
2: Uh, he has a mobile, expressive face that's pleasantly smile crinkled around the edges. This is practice, he says to an imaginary kid seated in an empty chair facing his desk. I'm going to say no to you, just for practice. And if you can sit quietly and don't yell and scream when I say no, you'll earn a bubble. A bubble is a token that can be cashed in for a treat, a special food, activity, or other privilege the kid would be eager to accrue enough tokens to pay for. When the imaginary kid finally manages to take no without losing it, Casden praises him and steps close to mine, giving him a high five, all the while smiling warmly and sustaining eye contact. Then he checks outside the doorway to see if the coast is clear, leans back in, and says conspiratorially, I'm not supposed to do this. But let's see if we can get you another bubble. I bet you can't do that again. Kasdan's manner changes when he talks to the imaginary kid. His shoulders loosen, and he bends at the knees like a vaudevillian trooper. He bobs in and out, now muting his voice, coming close and crouching down low to a seated child's level, now moving back and standing up straighter, filling the room with his beaming presence. His face lights up with enthusiasm, eyes opening extra wide to accentuate his smile catching and holding the kid's gaze, his ears seem to grow bigger. It's almost disturbing to see how well he's clicking with this non-existent kid. (laughs) Just the spillover from the connection feels so potent that I find myself wanting to show Kasdan that I can sit quietly (laughs) and not have a tantrum. I could use a bubble too. And yet, beneath the practiced charm of of an adult who works with children, Kasdan's clinical reserve and intellectual command, are evident. The hard-boiled knowingness of a professional who's made a career out of breaking down even the most passionately, out-of-control human behavior into component elements that can be reassembled in desired form. For more than 20 years, he has devoted himself to research that has resulted in a high degree of confidence in the efficacy of his approach to treating children's conduct disorders. And the thing I'll say about that passage is that every single thing he did is, is designed to fit the research. The sort of lowering the bar and doing it again. The fact that um, praise is much more effective if it's multimodal, so smile, word, touch, right. Um, So if the praise is delivered in multiple modes, that increases the chances it will shape the behavior. Um, So every single little thing he does, the distance away he is, the expression on his face, the exaggerated quality is is all just—he's he's he's just acting out the research. That's all he's doing. It feels completely natural. Um, but he's, you know, he's he's um, he's sort of living the consequences of the research is what he's doing. And so he's that what we're looking at is pure technique. Um, and there's nothing about it that's special to kids, or defined kids. He says he uses it on his department at Yale all the time. <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, you can tell people you're doing it. You can say, I am now going to reinforce a behavior in you that I want more of, and it still works. You know, <laughs> you just go to your college and you're like, that was great, the way you made the meeting end quicker. You know. Yeah. And uh, touch them on the shoulder, you know. Uh, and uh, it's it's a very simple set of moves. It's sort of like a martial art with only six moves, right? But the existence of Kazdan and his crew—he has a crew of um, people who work with him—is like a parent's dream. You know, because any problem that you give them, they can rearrange the six moves of the martial art to solve the problem. how about a family with like, you know, one super defiant kid, one like incredibly well-behaved kid, but who's jealous of all the attention the super defiant kid is getting, and another kid who's in, and they're like, okay, program would look like this, and they rearrange the six moves, and, and like it would work like this. We had, you know, and uh, it's just like it's a fantasy, you know, of, of a parent that these people exist. Um, the last thing I'll say about this story, uh, just in, in in general, is that um. I took this assignment because um, my wife ordered me to, uh, because we had a super defiant uh, daughter. Uh, and she read Kasdan's book uh, and typed up the main points and- Your, your wife, them. not your daughter. Yeah, no, not the daughter. She was very small. And taped them to the kitchen cabinets. And she came back and was like, this guy's a genius. Take the job, right?
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, and then I ended up at the end of the story saying, look, this guy, people need to know about this work. Nobody knows about it. Um, and I ended up writing two books with him uh, afterward, two two popularizing books, um, precisely for that reason, because uh, I, I felt people should know about this. It, you know, um, defiant kids get abused more than any others, and uh, he says we actually, we actually just work on parents. We don't actually work on the kids. Kids respond to their parents. We teach the parents not to set the kids up, basically. Um, and so that was. I mean, this guy's nothing but. Lessons in craft, you know, and especially the incredibly complicated craft of how to be a parent, you know, and it's just, it was, it's so astonishing to realize as somebody who's been thinking about, like, how close do you stand to the kid when you praise the kid, you know, Mm -hmm. stuff that is not ambiguous, not smarmy, not, you know, not like trying to reinforce his self esteem, you know, but no, stand within three feet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, a few things I really love about the passage is that, I mean, you talk about how you can break down these the human behavior into component elements that then yeah. get reassembled. And I, I felt like that's what your prose was doing as well with Kasdan And I I don't know if that was your intention where like I wanna I wanna be like the kind of the camera eye yeah. that in some ways is noting every move he makes. Yeah. So that it can be processed by the um the reader in the same way. And even just in terms of like the straightforwardness of of the the syntax where you, you see every action yeah. separated in a different phrase yeah. and things like that.
2: I think the main thing that the prose wants to convey here is just how purposeful he is. Right? Mm-hmm. Everything he does is motivated. There's no vagueness. Everything has sharply defined edges. And so I think you don't even really need a lot of commas for that in, you know, in a lot of ways. You, you, you just want to, you want to um, have a sense of kind of momentum and, and moving forward through a sequence. Okay. And this is fairly early in the story, but then I break down the whole sequence later in the story and sort of you know explain the his theories behind the, or the the arguments behind the different things that he does. So I think in this case I wouldn't want to go with kind of long, elaborate, nested sentences because what I want to convey is a kind of sharp-edgedness.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And that's why I think hard-boiled knowingness is the most important
1: mm. phrase in here, which is that you know he he, se- he seems to be. Engaging in some kind of emotional interaction, but in fact, it's just a fantasy person that he's engaging with. And it's a little scary. Yeah. And, and, uh, <laughs> yeah. and and it's like it's just like an actor who's yeah. so, so good at the role. Yeah. Well, it's also he's
2: he's embodying the research. Yeah. And that's the that's what that's the feel I wanted to have. You know, this as he said, this is not my opinion. This is a technology.
1: That said, there's a bit of a, I mean, I think one reason hard-boiled, knowing kind of jumps out is because earlier if you compared him to a vaudevillian. Yeah. And we think of a vaudevillian as like, you know, slapstick or, you know, like with these broad gestures and there's an air of comedy, you know, to it, possibly, entertainment. Uh, But then it's like, well, behind that vaudeville act is the hard-boiled sensibility. And also the thing about
2: a vaudevillian is that they just go and do it night after night. You know, the same old buck and wing, it always gets yucks,
3: you know, right?
2: And there's some of that too. You know, people come in, seriously distressed families, parents who say they don't love their children anymore come in, and he goes into the old buck and wing, you know, and uh, and, uh, and tries to fix it. So there is a kind of vaudevillian um, repetition to it, too. I thought vaudevillian was the right word, you know, because there's a certain cynicism to even the happiest. Uh, kind of jokeyist vaudeville, which is like, yeah, this always works, <laughs> right? You know, that, that, that kind of quality to it.
1: I thought also vaudeville is, is a little anachronistic. Yeah. You know, so it's sort of like, this guy, like, we think that parenting, it's like, oh, you need the most cutting edge technology. But it's like, actually, maybe in the, in the space of vaudeville are the kind of talents that we need yeah. to yeah. connect with a child, just like children would love cartoons and vaudeville, you know what I mean, yeah. Big bigger gestures. Yeah, well, uh, and
2: there's nothing, you know, the, the, the research is very precise, but there's nothing about this that you know, would come as, uh, there's no high technology to this. There's no, you know, it's, it's very simple stuff. It's just very hard to do. It's hard to be disciplined. He's an extraordinarily disciplined person, right? And it's very hard for a parent to fall into this character, especially a parent who's enraged or, you know, tired or at their wit's end, you know? So it looks very simple, but it's very hard.
1: Yeah. Now, for me, the line that really stuck is that you, you're very good with last. Sentences of paragraphs, um, we could go through every paragraph you write and talk about the last sentence, but for me, that line his ears seemed to grow bigger, got a good laugh, but it 's also like you know, yes, this is a technology, but the technology has an element of magic to it absolutely you know you're like what, what this guy, what's happening? How did he transform himself you know yeah in that magic that the, the alchemy of his performance
2: Well, I think you put your finger on something really important for academic writers to understand too, which is that I always spent fair amount of time talking about this in, in writing workshops, which is that um, in trade writing, uh, so we are all taught from third grade on uh, that the uh, you put the most important idea in the topic sentence and then the paragraph deploys evidence to explain the topic sentence and then you know you get to the end and the topic sentence has been elaborated. But in trade writing, I think it's the kicker. It's the last, um, you, you tell a story or you show a scene and then in the last sentence of the paragraph, you draw the moral. Um, and a lot of trade writing, a lot of trade writers you can so with, a lot, with academic writers, you can string together the topic sentences, you pull the topic sentence out of every paragraph, and you've got the, the argument. I think with a lot of trade writers, it's the opposite. You string together the kickers, and each paragraph sort of tells a story or shows a scene, and then gets to this moment, and then you draw the moral. Um, and so that arg-
1: argument seems to precipitate out of the story. Exactly. And, and as opposed to a, having, you have to like believe in, in academic writing, you have to believe in the authority of the person, right. and then get supported. Whereas, this is the authority of the scene. Yeah. yeah, I think you're absolutely right, and also the kickers are often very brief.
2: Mm-hmm. Um, so Louis Menand in the New Yorker wrote a profile of Al Gore uh, when he was running for president, and one uh, he was talking about Bill Clinton as Elvis, uh, and uh, and so the idea is that after Elvis come the Beatles, and that will be Al Gore like cerebral, and you know, and then there's a parenthesis. The kicker's is actually parentheses. Also, comma, it's true, comma, the monkeys. <laughs> 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 and it's like that sort of trade writing at its best. And he's an English professor, right? So he that's again, he had to he had to pour his craft into a series of containers. Before he wrote for The New Yorker, he wrote for um, uh, he wrote for an art magazine, he wrote for The New, New Republic. Republic yeah. um, and so you that you know, and I learned this stuff writing for magazines too. I, I kind of reverse engineered a lot of this stuff from what editors did to my work. And when academics write a kicker, it tends to go like this. Thus we see, <laughs> under conditions of late capitalism, comma, and then whatever your
1: point is. And you know, that's not a kicker. That's like, a blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, in terms of moving the reader. I mean, like, yeah. the is, like how do you yeah. hold that reader in, in and your it, hands yeah. and, and give them An experience that then leads them to think new thoughts and see new vistas. Well, you want the reader to be thinking, thus we see under conditions of late
2: capitalism, you know, but you just be like, his ears get bigger, you know. (laughs) (laughs)
4: Um,
1: Well, one more scene, uh, one more of uh, craft, and then I'll open it up to everybody here. You can start this up. This is a Jack Vance profile.
2: So, this is a profile of Jack Vance who lived not far from here in the Oakland Hills, a uh, fantasy and science fiction writer. Um, and one of the properties of Jack Vance's career was that, although he was celebrated as a genre writer, he, he never really kind of became as big a deal as, say, Philip K. Dick or, or you know some other genre writers. But a lot of writers who were much more famous than him were turned into writers by him. Um, and so part of what happens in this story is I interview all these people like Michael Chabon and George R.R. R. Martin who say, yeah, like I read Jack Vance, and that was it. I became a writer. You know? And that also, although I'm not one of those famous writers, was also my experience, is that when I read him when I was about 13, I said, OK, that's it. <laughs> this is what I'm doing. Right? Um, and so this is a, a moment from that profile when I talk about that. And so this is writing about writing, writing about a writer. I can remember the exact lines on the second page of Jack Vance's The Dying Earth. Uh, no, actually, it's, uh, it's not The Dying oh, Earth. The it's dying uh, Earth. The Eyes of the Overworld. Oh, sorry. Apologies uh, for that. That's an outrage. Uh, <laughs> that sank the hook in me for keeps, a passing exchange of dialogue between two hawkers of sorcerers' curios at a bazaar. I can resolve your perplexity, said Fionaster. Your booth <laughs> occupies the site of the old gibbet and has absorbed unlucky essences. But I thought to notice you examining the manner in which the timbers of my booth are joined. You will obtain a better view from within, but first I must shorten the chain of the captive herb which roams the premises during the night. No need, said Kugel. My interest was cursory. (laughs) The feral angling politesse, the marriage of high-flown language to low motives, the way Kugel's clipped phrases rounded off Fionaster's uh, ornate ones. I found myself seized by a writer's style in a way I had never experienced before. Vance didn't even have to describe the captive herb. The phrase itself conjured up rows of teeth and the awful strength of a long sinewy body surging up your leg. Intricate plotting is not Vance's forte, but he artfully recombines recurring elements. The rhythms of travel, the pleasures of music, strong drink and vengeance, touchy encounters with pedants, mountebanks, violently opinionated esthetes and zealots, louts, bigots of all stripes, and boyishly slim young women with an enigmatic habit of looking back over their shoulders. His stories sustain an anecdotal forward drive that balances his digressive pleasure in imagining a world and the hypnotic effect of his distinctive tone, which has been variously described as barbed, velvety, arch, and Mandarin. Reading Vance leaves you with a sense of formality, of having been present at an occasion when, for all the jokiness and the fun of made up words, the serious business of literary entertainment was transacted. And it teaches a lasting lesson about the writer's craft. Whatever's on the cover, you can always aim high. So in this case, the form into which Jack Vance poured his inspiration was pulp fiction, fantasy and science fiction. Um, and uh, and he, he sort of never got the, the notice that he deserved, I thought. And at the age of 92, I finally talked my editors into letting him at his age of 92, uh, I, I talked my editors into letting me profile him in the New York Times magazine. He died uh, shortly after. So this was an attempt to uh, engage head on the, that first of the containers style right? that Vance had cobbled together from really bizarre sources, P.G. Woodhouse is one, um, uh, and even more obscure fantasy writers, a way to express his view of the world, which is that people are savages, uh, but um, cover that up with manners and, and, and a sense of a sort of inflated sense of themselves, um, and and uh, so I was trying to just capture that, and trying to capture the sense of how a style can be the most important thing about an artist, right. rather than
1: the the st- the.
2: Other elements like the great themes of his work, the, you know, the how, how many or, books it sold, you know, how many copies it sold, um, uh, how, you know, celebrated he was in his time. Um, and then what I did in the, in the book was went and found a lot of other writers, Neil Gaiman and Michael Chabon and, and, and uh, others who said, yeah, you know, I encountered that style and I realized that style was a thing. And so, what the other thing that this story was really about is how when you're 13 years old and you read something and you get into it, that's like that's you're like hot wax at 13 years old. You'll never get as into a thing you read again as you do when you're 13 years old. And uh, and I wanted to capture that too. And to say, you know, when he sort of dismissed as like, well, he wrote literature for children, is to say, well, actually, <laughs> what he did was he, you know, he encountered a lot of writers encountered him at that moment, at that hot wax moment, and it changed them forever.
1: Well, one thing I really love about this passage is that I think like, you you basically say yourself like I fell in love with him, and then you give the passage. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I may stand for some readers when I'm like, well, this is it's interesting what Jack Vance is doing, but he's kind of violating a lot of rules of oh, regular yeah. style. <laughs> like yeah. maybe if somebody was to write a profile of Linwood Taylor in that <laughs> kind of style, you'd be like, this is inappropriate. You know, <laughs> yeah. uh, why are, why is your syntax all twisted yeah. up, and what what's with the archaic meeting this? Um, and I, I what I love about this is that then you actually you just sort of break down what he's doing. You give a name yeah. to the, the qualities of his style. And in doing that, you make it available for our inspection as, and appreciation as readers.
2: Yeah, and the other thing I try to do in that passage is reduce his 74 novels to one list, <laughs> right? And so that you feel that you've read them all, you know? And it's like, yeah, there's a lot of travel and vengeance and, you know, louts, right? <laughs> uh, and, uh, and, you know, that's a... I think arguing with lists is another kind of one of those trade skills that, that um, academics don't often, um, that you aren't really taught in academia, is that you can make a really evocative, resonant list that makes the re- you know, when you write about a writer in a magazine, you've got to assume that the readers haven't read that writer. And so you have to make them feel that they have. Um, and so part of it is quoting him, and then part of it is sort of reducing those 74 novels to one really long sentence with a lot of semicolons in it.
1: And what do you think is the, how does a list make an argument or um, th- fill the mind of the reader in ways that a story would not? I mean, I, I think you're.
2: Because
1: uh, uh, it's, it's
2: about, yeah, what starts by saying plot is not his thing, right? And it's, it's much more that there are these recurring pleasures, there's a recurring, these recurring things that happen in it. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, it's not an argument for his greatness, uh, this, this piece. It's an argument for his effect, mm-hmm. it's an argument for the power of style as the dominant. Feature of a writer's um, work mm-hmm. rather than this is as great as a novel or you should read
1: this, or whatever. Right, it's based on that, what you call the hypnotic effect yeah. of the tone, which, yeah. and even like the, 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 the terms that are used to describe it, like barbed, velvety, arch, and mandarin, are themselves yeah. elevated terms, you know, very particular terms.
2: I think whenever you write about a writer, you end up using, you end up falling into some, something of their rhythm, and other people who love a writer. People who love a particular writer end up sort of like characters invented by that writer. You know, like so people who love Jack Vance turn into sort of unreasonable Jack Vance characters who mm. you know <laughs> think Jack Vance is the greatest. You know, against all possible arguments. Um, so that's also part of what's going on. But this is, you know, this is really a piece about enthusiasm. This is a piece about this. Like when you're 13 and you read something and you like it, it just takes you over. It swallows you whole. Um, and that, you know, I thought that that's a. I don't know. I never read stuff in magazines about that, <laughs> and you know, usually magazine profiles of writers are there. It's about a literary writer who's written a very important new book, and you should read it because you're an educated person. You know, and this is the opposite of that. Remember when you were 13 and you read something and you loved it? Remember what that was like? Um, and uh, you know, I, I always think sort of what's in the foreground, what's in the background, mm-hmm. and what's in the background is the power of pulp uh, to shape
1: people's lives. Well, and and, and also that you find. The craft within the pole. I thought, whatever's on the cover, you can always aim high. Yeah, I mean that seems like maybe a motto of yours as well. You know? uh. Absolutely. I, uh, you know, I
2: wrote for Boston Magazine for years. Uh, I wrote some of my favorite pieces I've ever written for Boston Magazine. Boston Magazine's business model requires that on the cover is the 50 best lobster rolls (laughs) in, in Boston, or even better, the 100 best schools in the Boston area. And and what they do there is they just sit around and say, you know what? Let's not put Brookline first, because then more people will talk about it. Well, let's put Newton, <laughs> Newton South first, you know, and 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 so I, that's the condition, that's the nature of that container. But if they put the hundred lobster roll schools on the cover, then um, they get to run two or three real features inside. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm happy to, you know, I'm happy to aim high, no matter what's on the cover of the magazine, you know. Uh, and I think that's, you know, when you enter into the world of trade writing, that's. That's part of what you deal with. Every business, every, every vessel, every institution has a business model. And the question is, can I do what I do within that business model?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I just feel like it's also a kind of a democratic ethos that I feel in a lot yeah. of your writing, where it's like, it could be how uh, a goalie in the NHL try, you know, tries to make sure the puck doesn't go yeah. in, or whatever field it is, there is a craft. Yeah. Anybody who is doing something a lot has to figure out how to do it efficiently, well, if effectively, resonantly, or what, what have you. And that's like, that, you know, or it could be, you know, um, uh, the, the person who's, who's cleaning hotel rooms. Yeah. There's a craft to that as well, you know, and, and so on.
2: And I think that's also the thing is that as soon as you have craft, you have what we look for in literary criticism, which is expressive form. The way you clean the hotel room. The way you throw a left hook. The way you do whatever. And as soon as you have expressive form, it becomes kind of a fly catcher or Velcro for meaning. right? So that we can say, I see in the way the person does that a much larger sweep of history. So in the case of Jack Vance, he grew up in a middle class family here in San Francisco. They lost their money in the Depression. He was mistreated by a lot of people. And that really shows up in his fiction, where people are really nasty to each other. Um, but he read Weird Tales magazine. It came in the mail every month. And he read Edgar Rice Burroughs and Robert E. Howard and, and C.L. Moore and all these great pulp writers there. And that was the institution that gave him the vessel that he wanted to pour, essentially, his vision of the world, which is people are grasping and cruel, but they cover it up with a kind of inflated um, sense of themselves. Mm. And, uh, and so. What you see in the craft, as soon as you have uh, purposefulness of what you've described and a kind of repeated um, honing of your skills, that then you have expressive form. And when you have expressive form, you have a container, you have you an have a, a, a armature, a framework that can hold meaning, and it can hold like the history that went into um, uh, getting to that point. You can read between the lines of it. Um, how, you know, I've written about a, a woman boxer. You know, how did a woman who's getting a Ph.D. in psychology end up as the most promising fighter? in Erie, Pennsylvania. right, And the way she throws a punch contains a whole history of work and play, and what you know, violent games girls are allowed to play, and how that changed after Title IX, and how karate wasn't satisfying, and she moved up to boxing, and, and why educated women were sort of leading the uh, movement into legitimate boxing. for you know, Like these much bigger stories about the gendered nature of work and play, but it's all contained in the way she gets to the gym, ties up her long blonde hair, uh, and starts throwing punches at the bag, right? And, and so in, in the movement, in those practiced repeated movements, you get the person living the consequences of these much larger histories, the deindustrialization of the Midwest, the changes in, in sort of the gendering of work and play and all those bigger things.
1: Well, that's great. I promised I would open it up, and this seems like an appropriate time to do so. So if people have questions about anything, Carlo is on the hot seat.
5: Especially so since I think,
4: I believe if you ask artists to talk about creativity and inspiration, you seldom will get a, a good answer. So this, I think, this is really <laughs> interesting. But I wanted to ask you, did you say that Vance created his own containers? And and if so, how did that affect uh, yeah. his career?
2: No, he didn't. He he, um, he had to he had to pour his inspiration. So he created his own style, but he had to pour it in the containers that were available, which is... Um, he started out writing kind of what he called gadget science fiction stories, kind of classic science fiction stories, and that just didn't scratch the itch. He didn't care about spaceships, and all that stuff. He cares about kind of world-thinking and the way people treat each other. So the, po- the the pocket paperback came along, and that became his his thing. So the 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 original Jack Vance novels are full of typos and Editors' mistakes and like omitted paragraphs and you know all this stuff because he had to pour his inspiration into the container that was available. So what he did was he would take his family to some exotic location and he would type, um, he would crank out a couple of novels and they would get paid enough to move to the next exotic location, right? Um, but no, he he had to he had to operate, which meant he had to crank the work out. That's the other thing. The other reason that his work repeats itself so much is because he had to do a lot of it, mm-hmm. right? So what he, conti- what he created was a particular style, and there are certain writers that he was copying: P.G. Woodhouse, a writer named Jeffrey Farnol, a couple of others. But really, it's kind of his thing. But then he had to take that style and send it to editors who were not sympathetic to that, and who were just like, "Can we please have more sword fights?" You know, <laughs> because Vance doesn't care about any of that stuff. He doesn't care about like magic or. Or like battles, you know, he summarizes battles in two sentences, you know? Like, yeah, there was a battle. Now, this is what's going on in the, in the lounge of the inn, you know? Like, where people were being incredibly impolite to each other. Because you know? uh, that's what he cares about, right? And, but he, he had to live within the world of Pulp Fiction, right? Um, as as uh, more than one of the writers I interviewed said, if his name had been Italo Calvino, he would have been known as a famous uh, fabulist. But because his name was Jack Vance, he was a pulp writer, right? Hmm.
4: hi um, I, I hope I have a question about purpose with essays in addition to form I've read some of your essays and have really enjoyed them Thank you. Um, probably haven't read more because my stack of New Yorkers is mm-hmm. unread New Yorkers. yeah um, I I think um, from what I've read of yours and the things you've discussed um, I like have a I have a trust in your knowledge. Well, that's you know, good. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's not, it's not always given. That's, that's the problem. So, you know, you're, you're, you're researching, you're discovering, you have knowledge, background knowledge. Mm-hmm. It's not like the first Buddy Guy concert you went to and you're writing about it, you know? Right, right. Um, you know, so that's, that's really important to me. But I find that um, a lot of essays I write... <laughs> right. oops, uh, <laughs> read. Um, I'll read them, and then I'll kind of come back to them a while later, and I realize that the writer's style or their abilities are so good. It's more, maybe they're making more of a polemic right. statement right. rather than just saying this is what happened or something. Right. And that I'm taken over by this. Right. And then later I realize, wait, this person is operating out of their emotions, which is, right. you know, fine. Right, but they're, the they're not saying it's their emotions. The they're authority saying, leaks out of it. Yeah, and this is this has happened. I mean, I'll just give you an example. So when I spent a lot of time in Berlin when I was in my 20s. And then I started reading a bunch of articles by Jane Kramer. Mm-hmm. Okay, She wrote a whole bunch in The New Yorker, super long, you know, back when they did these... And I was so into it. And her writing was so incredible. You know, just her detail, her ability to catch everything. was. And towards the end, she became critical. And I took on this criticism like, of Berlin and what was going on there. This isn't like before the wall came down. Right. And then later, engaging with some of the people from Berlin more and discussing it, I realized she was just angry for her own reasons. <laughs> right. You know, but, but yeah. so, it's, so if you're that powerful, a writer, you know, it's, it's a problem for the reader. On the other hand, if you have like, sorry, I'm talking too much yeah. you know, like a James Walcott or something, you know, who used to write kind of criticism about books and everything, like he would just obviously be on the attack. Right. He's like, I hate this person and I'm going to be funny about it, mm-hmm. so you know what you're getting, like well, you're not being fooled, you know, so. Well, I think there's two, there's two kinds for me.
2: I think there's two kinds. And I, I think you've, you've put your finger on something really important, which is that you can carry the reader with you without knowing what you're talking about. <laughs> right? um, and so I, they fall into two categories. There, there's, there's pieces like writing about Buddy Guy, or where I have a deep, deep well that I can reach back into. But then most of the of pieces don't fall into that category. Most pieces, like writing about Alan Kazan. I know nothing about child psychology. right? So there, I really switch. Hats and become much more of a reporter. I go talk to experts. I go, um, so I I go borrow other people's authority. Um, In in the case of Kasdan, I interviewed a couple of his sort of people at his level of the field of psychology to ask, well, what's up with Alan Kasdan? How would you place him? You know, because I just needed their authority. I needed to borrow their authority. Um, so I feel pretty confident about observing him in action, but I needed other people to pronounce on it. So, and there are pieces like, I wrote a profile of an opera composer, and 99.6% of what I know about opera is in that piece. But it sounds pretty authoritative, right? <laughs> there's just not any extra left, right? Um, so I, I really, um, there's, two, there's two, in my mind there's two kinds of essays. There's essays I write almost entirely from within what I know. Those are sort of barroom rant, Essays, you know, like Jack Vance is totally underrated. You know, like that's a Barnum rant. Um, But then a lot of other ones are. I got. I got to go do the legwork so that I can. I can cobble together the authority to to make this point. I try not to put myself in the position that you just described, which is um, I have a feeling, and I'm going to try to use rhetorical skill to to get the reader to share my feeling. But all I've got is the feeling, right? Um, Because I don't think that's necessarily worth writing about.
4: Yeah, I, I only—I mean, I'll, I'll, I won't take too much time, but I only brought it up because I've, either I become more sensitized to this kind of thing, or there's—I read—or there's more essays where yeah. I feel like the, the the author of the essay is just on their sort of polemical thing, well, and they're making a big point. And now, you know, I notice it, and I just put it down
2: yeah. because. Well, the other thing is that you can you can um, you can change the contract with the reader there, and you can signal you can say to the reader, now I'm going to. Now, I'm going to riff a bit, you know, and sort of say, like, you know, this is just me talking, right? Um, and then I, I might do that, but I,
3: I, I try not to confuse the two things, you know. Yeah. Thank you. Hi. 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 I'm a student at UC Berkeley. Um, I just wanted to get some advice, I guess, just about like, Originating creatives and artists who are currently working with like multiple containers, mm-hmm. not really sure which one to pour it all into. Right. And just like I guess advice on how to decide which one's right for you, and like whether or not you can handle multiple at a time, or like even career wise, which one you should choose. Are we talking about stylistic ones or insta- You know, like more like like for example, like I used to work in journalism, like at a high school mm-hmm. and collegiate level. And then I kind of dropped it after I was taking, started taking more poetry classes, mm-hmm. and I just discovered I had a penchant for poetry. Right. And then I just started kind of leaving my journalistic skills underdeveloped and like kind of forgot about it, honestly. Mm-hmm. But like now that I'm like going into post grad, I'm kind of thinking about it more. Like, what do I really want to do?
2: Yeah, well. Uh, I wish the answer was five, you know, but um, I guess, so there's a couple ways to think about that. One way to think about that is, actually, if you do that equation, I think the answer is the essay. right? If you want to sort of, journalism plus poetry equals the essay, right? Um, but the other way to think about it is um, is it's precisely right in, it's precisely um, sampled as many different Containers as possible, so that you get a better sense of it's not only who allows you to do what you want to do, but whose due diligence can you stand, you know? And it's sometimes, like you learn, like oh, okay, well, to do that kind of work, I have to do this kind of due diligence, and I just, I just don't want to do it. I don't like to do it. You know, it's not, it's not satisfying to me. I find it onerous. Um, but I think the only way to do that is to um, is to do some journalism and write some poetry and 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 figure out which one you are rushing through to make time for the other. right? And at that point, either you've got a decision or you're looking for the average of the two. And I think the average of the two is actually the essay. Um, I think the essay is where the journalistic and the poetic impulses can meet and do business with each other. And. Um, uh, but I think if I was in that situation, I would try to get myself as some assignments to do some journalism. And I would try to, in a disciplined way, or take a class that forces me to write poetry on schedule. <laughs> right? Um, so that um, you get used to I think the only way to do it is to have both to do and to, and to realize which one you're putting off because you want to do the other. You know. Thank you. Yeah. You know, in my case, what I discovered was I like to write profiles. Um, I didn't really want to write, what I wanted to do wasn't so much just magazine features. There's a lot of magazine features I don't really want to write, you know. Yeah. Who's gonna win the election, you know. There's plenty of people want to write that and it's important, but I, I don't want to yeah. do that.
3: One of my favorite high school assignments was writing a profile of a high school teacher that uh, was writing a book. Yeah. And it was very intimate because like she was like my favorite teacher. Yeah. And like very well, and had a lot of class with her. And there's like her publishing a book, and I was ha- happened to be editor chief for the high school newspaper. Like yeah. writing a profile about her was like very cathartic, I think.
2: Yeah. Well, it's worth interrogating what was you know what about it made it that way? Was it the conversation? Was it the capturing a person? Was it you know like what is it about that? And then try to get more assignments to do that, <laughs> right? Is somebody back there getting to work at?
5: I want to thank you for the closing sentence of the piece on Kasdine Kasdan? Kasdan, yeah. Kasdine. yeah. There's a meter there, speaking poetry, that's killer. <laughs> if you revisit, I'm sure you've got it in your mind, but if you revisit that, last flowing line it's beautiful. Thank you, number one. <laughs> Appreciate that. Uh, number two, the Baudrillian reference. Um, about, I'd love to see this guy. Too bad it's not <laughs> inset. Um, There was a reference, I'm not sure who said it, there was a reference to the cynicism of vaudeville. I think I heard that. Mm, That was me. Thank you. Okay. Uh, Well, I would posit, um, I'm old, not old enough to have seen vaudeville, but seen lots of the Marx Brothers movies, probably every one. They vary in quality, but their roots are clearly vaudeville. Mm -hmm. And to me, there's a real sense of liberation, (coughs) of resilience here. Yes, there's the huckster, the shyster, there's the trickster, there's all those things. And maybe we all want to see them, and you know, gamble and bet our, our best mm-hmm. bet against that kind of personality or personal personality traits. Right. But I think it's actually kind of inspiring. I think, especially to the younger kids. So I would say there's that flip side, maybe. Uh,
2: I I'm w- happy to concede the point. If <laughs> 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 yeah, uh, there's a person, right there.
5: um, Actually, that uh, question. A couple things that I noticed was when you mentioned about Kasdan, that he's embodying the research, mm-hmm. and thinking of embodiment, and particularly with Vaudeville, that's actually <laughs> early on, that where the body kind of fits in this. And um, coming from a literature background, I was thinking of you know body, vessel, container, mm-hmm. that, uh, and also the Linwood Taylor, that the playing the guitar and then the kind of par- paralyzed and mm-hmm. the the uh, me ma moo that whole thing. Right. That I was wondering bit open-ended, but I was kind of curious about mm-hmm. embodiment or bodies.
2: Um, so I think it's really, really important in this kind of writing, you have to have scenes that work. Um, and a face-to-face interview is not a very interesting scene. I mean, there's a few people out there who can carry a face-to-face interview as an interesting scene, but it's pretty rare, right? So I completely agree. I am really looking for what people do with their bodies. Um, uh, that's, that's one of the main things I'm looking for. And as I was telling the class earlier today, um, when I do a profile, I usually do two face-to-face sit-downs with the subject, one at the beginning and one at the end. But in the middle, I do a lot of shadowing. And, I lit- and I, that means I want access, but I don't want them to talk to me. I want to go along while they do stuff. And I l- literally want to see them in profile. I want to look at them from the side. Because I think when you deal with people face to face, they sort of got their armor and their mask on and they're, who they are, they're performing who they are. And when you see them from the side, sometimes you can see around that stuff. Um, so yeah, you're absolutely right. I, I am looking for um, scenes in which people, people, the way they carry themselves, the way they use their bodies um, shows us something about the meaning of what they do or the origins of what they do or the sort of consequences of what they do. So. Um, yeah, I'm always looking for that, and, and I, I get it mostly in shadowing rather than face-to-face interviews um, uh, as a general rule. That's not always true. There are some people. I, I profiled the boxer Bernard Hopkins, who's maybe my favorite person I've ever written about. And when you talk to Bernard Hopkins, he hikes his chair up like one inch away from your chair and he's like breathing on you, like he's breathing his hot breath on you, and, and, and he's always jabbing your, like, your torso. He's always feeling you, um, and he's like poking you, and like he's illustrates points, he's grabbing your arm, and he's, and he's like, like, a, like when you fight a left-hander, he's always trying to get his foot outside your foot. You know? So you're sitting talking, and your foot's moving <laughs> further over, and, you know? and, uh, and I noticed he does this to everybody, not just me, so I put that all in the story. And I said, why do you do that? And he says, well, you know, it's part of my diagnosis. You know, I'm feeling for weakness. You know, I'm feeling for weakness in the body. Because Mariano Hopkins' this whole thing is he figures out what, he want, what, he, what you want to do, and then he doesn't let you do it. So it makes it a very difficult interview. But it also makes it a very eventful <laughs> interview, right? So in that case, talking to him is a scene. You know, because it's, it's, it's the essence of who he is, is that he keeps interrupting you and jabbing you and poking you and clinching with you and make, just making it impossible to ask him a question and get an answer.
4: Thank you so much for such a wonderful interaction with us. Uh, One question that always comes to my mind, that accomplished writers, how many hours a day on an average or a week do you write generally? Mm.
2: I wish there was one answer to that, and it was a lot. Um, (laughs) I think I think of it in three stages. So the hours between 5 and 7 AM are worth six hours. So if I can just get up and write, I can do all of my drafting for the day. Um, and then, let's say say it's a writing day, not a, not a reporting day. So in a, in a, on a perfect writing day, between five and seven, I just type. And then between seven and noon, I like revise and whatever, and I've got about 1,000 words, one to 2,000 words a day. And then the rest of the day, I'm doing my research or, you know, or calling people or checking things or, you know. So, but that only works if I can work every day. But, you know, if I can just do that every day. But if other things get in the way, then I have to extend the writing and try and write maybe 3,000 words in a day. But if I'm really rolling in a week, I can write 10,000 words, right? And I can do that with sort of two super concentrated hours and then four or five slightly less concentrated hours and then clean up and other stuff for the rest of the day. Um, it doesn't always work that way, and sometimes I gotta force it. Um, and sometimes I'll try to get another 5 to 7 a.m. in the same day by taking a nap. Right, so like if I take a nap and then I reset, I wake up, then I can do those two productive hours again.
1: Okay. I think we have one last question here.
0: Thank you. Uh, it's been delightful. Thank um, you. Uh, Kind of a two-part question. The first time I ever th- kind of tried to understand what I think you're doing was an essay I read by Tom Wolfe called The New Journalism. Mm-hmm. He talked about a lot of things that I see yeah. and just really ignited me, so I'm wondering if you kind of think of yourself in that school, and, the, and more important, who are the writers that are kind of in your genre that preceded you, that looking back in now said, well, those are the people, not the Jack Vance, the yeah. who seems like he want to
3: make you a writer,
0: but who are the writers who write in your genre, the new journalists, for yeah. lack of a better term, that you think uh, the students here should know, or better yet, right. that I should know? Well, so, uh, I mean, Tom
2: Wolf, I like, I, like, I, I sound like, Every music fan in the world. I like the early Tom
4: Wolfe.
2: <laughs> <laughs> first song on the first side of the first album. I like the specials. Right? Uh, so uh, I, and that, that that early stuff really is. You know, he he has the same degree that we do. Comes out comes out of, comes out of a PhD program in American Studies at Yale, and he went straight to the New York Herald Tribune, uh, and he, he was the city room was Tom Wolfe, Jimmy Breslin, Dick Schapp, and uh, Charles Portis, the guy who wrote True Grit, uh, and uh, he was really doing American studies without footnotes. He was uh, the, uh, the uh, electric, uh, no, the uh, tangerine, the um, tangerine flake streamlined baby. What's the rest? Candy colored tangerine flake streamlined baby um, is a series of kind of Weberian sociological studies of outgroups that are producing authoritative culture. And that's where you first encounter Cassius Clay and the Rolling Stones and the Girl of the Year. Um, uh, and all that stuff is is in that collection. So yeah, and and you know he was you know he was doing what all the new journalists are doing, which is taking the tools of the novel and and bringing them to um, nonfiction writing. I find you know, i you know, he sort of hates people, so he's not like the greatest model, you know. Um, but when I think about the people who are doing this kind of thing at a really high level. Um, and we are sort of in this golden age of nonfiction. You know, the last 20, 30 years, it's just been amazing. I think Anne Fadiman, uh, The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down. William Finnegan, uh, a Cold New World. Um, th- these are books that have all the kind of, um, you know, it's sort of such a cliche to say it reads like a novel. But when I say it reads like a novel, I mean that you capture the inner lives of the characters in action. And that you also you get the inner lives of the characters and also the social setting and the kind of bigger history behind them. I think those two books, more than any other two, "Cold New World" and "The Spirit Catches You and You Fall Down," to me, were sort of said, you know, whatever's on the cover, you can you can set the bar high. That that um that the, those are, uh, those are books where I thought you they've explained big things about the world and um, introduced me to people who live and breathe. Um, which is, I think, that, that's, that's the split. That's the exacto that I think good nonfiction writing needs to do. The characters need to live, but they also need to live the consequences of this much bigger picture, whatever the big picture is. And there's, you know, there's tons of that stuff out there. Adrian Nicole LeBlanc, and um, uh, uh, who's the immersion journalism guy who wrote New Jack? Um, Ted Conover. You know, there's a lot of really high-end nonfiction writing out there these days that just combines beautiful writing with deep, deep reporting. One of the things that both Ann Fadiman and William Finnegan do is you read these books and you just see they spend a lot of time in people's kitchens, you know? And and they and they they know them well enough to say like, oh Mindy will come in and she'll always say this kind of thing. You know, because he just put in the time. You know, the legwork is just out of this world. Um, so there's, just, there's a ton of that stuff out there. And, and, and just to come back to my opening statement, some of this has to do with the nature of the institutional situation, which is about a generation or two ago, the money switched from fiction to nonfiction. Um, so what your agent, your agent does not want to hear, that you have a collection of poetry um, or a novel. Well, your agent wants you to embed with a motorcycle gang uh, and write a nonfiction book about that, right? Um, or if there's a war, even better. <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, and part of it is that the money, you know, the, the action and the money has really moved over primarily on fiction, so that um, uh, the 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 publishing houses are willing to, you know, to to support and and lionize and, and reward uh, deep 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 uh, legwork, um, you know, uh, Catherine Boo behind the beautiful forever. You know, these are this sort of, as I said, it's kind of a golden age of this kind of work. Well, then we're going
1: to end there. Thank you for the great audience. <laughs> the Carlo Rotello show continues at seven o'clock in Mod 5 Room. Learn about Chicago and
2: neighborhoods. Thanks so much. I appreciate it. Thanks for your questions.